0: Anybody wearing flip-flops? Sandals? I was so tempted. I didn't quite commit. Hey, Arvin. Nice to see you, front row. We'll get you home. Don't worry about it. That's awesome. I appreciate you asking. (laughs) Sweet. My name's Evan, if I haven't met you. Um, Those of you that I have met, it's great to see you again. Uh, So... We've been walking through the book of Mark uh, for the last, what, six months now, Um, and really our goal has been to focus on, obviously, who Jesus is, he does not change, and who his disciples were and potentially are. Um, Human nature really does not change that much over the century or millennia. Um, We can get a lot from analyzing who they are for our own lives as well. Um, And in the ministry of Jesus, right, the whole gospel, all of them, basically focus in on three years, three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, And we're basically getting to the climax. He's about a week out um, before he is murdered, crucified, and then rises from the dead. Uh, We're in Mark 11. Um, You know, before we uh, get any further, I wasn't sure if I should do this, but might as well. Um, You know, we often, due to um, culture as a whole, our specific culture, we see Jesus in specific ways, You know, for the Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious authorities, Jesus' openness and compassion for those who were not following the law really upset them in major ways. You know, and he's even been challenging his disciples. Think about how the discipleship began. They were called away from everything they knew to follow a man that they did not know. In the latter part of his ministry, where we're at now, he has begun to increase the intensity of his challenge to both the religious authorities and to his disciples. You know, we're going to get into Mark 11, and I have an entire chapter to go through in about 10 minutes, so we're obviously going to look at a big-picture approach to it. Um, But I want to start by focusing on the way that he has challenged, increasing his challenge towards the religious authorities. So in chapter 11 at the beginning, um, it's what we refer to as um, Palm Sunday. Jesus marches in as a king in the eyes of the people. They're laying down their cloaks before his unridden, his colt that had not been ridden before, um, which is the sign of a king back in those days. Um, They're praising his name, saying hallelujah to God who has sent his Messiah. This obviously upset the religious leaders. Right? They've been trying to knock him down earlier in his ministry. Now he comes into Jerusalem and gets a king's welcome. But then we see that his challenging even intensifies um, by what we've learned to be the cleansing of the temple. Um, so we'll read through it just so you guys know where we're going, and then we'll spend some time explaining it. So Mark eleven fifteen 15 through 19. When they, this is Jesus and his disciples, came to Jerusalem. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you you have made it into a den of robbers. When the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when the evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Alright, so Jesus enters the center of religious activity for the Jewish nation, upon which the Pharisees and the Sadducees had built their authority and power over the people. And he openly challenges what was occurring there. You know, beyond what we see here, and then in um, Matthew, Mark, or Matthew, Luke, and John, we really don't get much else. Um, but just through people's Um, understanding of what was going on during that time and their thoughts, we can kind of pick it apart in in order to understand a little bit deeper of what's happening here. So there's a good chance that he is going against their greed. You know, you see that it mentions that there are money changers. There's a certain currency that had to be obtained before you could buy anything in the temple, any any animals to sacrifice for the sake of your sins. And so these money changers would take the common currency and give the temple currency in order for people to then buy these sacrifices. But what was happening potentially is that they had an extremely high exchange rate. So in order to sacrifice to God, to atone for your sins, you had to pay two, three, four times as much as you would outside of the temple. You know, it's also also a potential that there's a corrupt standard on the side of the priests Animals had to, inspe- had to pass an inspection prior to being certified to be sacrificed for their sins. And it seems that certain priests would say, this animal is no good. Go and buy one from that guy. He's got good animals, right? And then think about the exchange rate. They would buy that animal. The priest would potentially get a cut. And then they would sell the animal that they had just taken from that individual, saying it wasn't good enough for them. Right? So just straight up corruption in a house that was built for people to relate more to God. You know, there's also a chance that there's straight racism taking place here. Uh, Just a couple years before this happened, the high priest allowed sale of goods to happen within the temple. Most likely, this took place in the outermost court, which was the court of Gentiles. So Gentiles are people that were not of the Jewish uh, nationality. So imagine, people like most of us, if not all of us, the only way that you can go and worship God in the temple is in the court of Gentiles. And when you walk in there, there's a full-on market with animals everywhere and money changers and all these things going on. How could you possibly approach God in that place? We see Jesus address both of these through his Old Testament quotes. If you wouldn't mind going back to the verse, the first section of it. Yeah, one more. So we see that the first one, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, maybe referring to his desire to have Gentiles there. That's from Isaiah. And then in Jeremiah, he says, but you have made, uh, you have made it a den of robbers, the idea of their greed really taking over. You know, but what is important to realize here is that Jesus is just one man in this massive temple full with hundreds, if not thousands of people. In this short time frame, did he truly cleanse out the temple? Did he truly kick everybody out? No. I'm sure once he was done, they just went back to business as normal. Like, man, did you hear that guy? That was crazy. So what was Jesus up to? So one, I think he wanted to openly point out their corruption. You see the way that Jesus got in their face in order to challenge the way that they were ripping off people. Two, I think he was making a prophetic statement that God was done with the temple. You know, you see this in a lot of different spots in this passage. The idea of the fig tree. You guys maybe know this a little bit. Right before he cleanses the temple, he sees a fig tree, says, I'm hungry, goes up to it, there's no figs, and so he curses it. What the heck's that all about? He goes and cleanses the temple. The next passage, they see the fig tree, and it's dead. They're like, why is that even in there? You know, some people believe that the fig tree is representing the temple system of the Jewish nation. You know, and this continues. The quote from Jeremiah 7 took place right before Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians and the temple burned down. In Mark 13, Jesus specifically says that no stone will be left unturned. This building is going to the ground. So Jesus was showing them this is all going to end. <coughs> 70 AD, Rome came in, burned the temple to the ground, 40 years after Jesus did this. You know, but I think... This is all in there, but he's also illustrating that the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, had not figured out how to be justified before God. They were so content with keeping the law in the way they thought it could be kept. They were so content with having the sacrifices to say, this is enough, we are good before God. And he wanted to challenge them and say, you guys do not have it figured out. Don't worry, we're going to get to application here soon. You know, I just love the Bible so much, and this is really where you get the truth. So hopefully this will give you a way to go a little bit deeper into it on your own. Um, You know, we also see that he challenges the disciples, not so much in this passage, um, but from chapter 8 on, he tells his disciples four different times that he is going to be crucified, obviously killed in a very dramatic and cruel way, and then rise again three days later. This is just boggles the disciples. They don't know what to make of it. You know, and then we also see that he is teaching them what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus. You know, and if you wouldn't mind putting that up there, it's a list of like five different things. He tells them that they are to serve instead of be served. They are to approach God and others with the humility of a child. They are to deny themselves and take up the cross. And that has so much in it, this idea of taking up a cross. They are to be willing to sacrifice all that they own, even their own lives, for the sake of Jesus and his ministry. And he tells the disciples of the hardship that they will soon face. You know, Nick's going to be talking on that next week. It's chapter 13. You know, if you think about the disciples as real individuals, just like you and I, that have left everything to follow this man that seems to be from God, imagine being told that this is what it looks like to be in our position. You know, for the disciples, they saw Jesus' main purpose and goal to restore Israel to the former glory of the time of David and Solomon. To throw off the, the, um, just the restriction and the control of the Roman and to give the disciples a place of power and authority in this new kingdom. You know, The disciples, I think at the heart of it, they probably really did love God. But deep down, they had a desire for self-glorification, for what they could get out of the ministry. And Jesus tells them over and over, you were not created to bring honor to yourself. You were not created for your own glory or fulfillment. God wants you to let go of your love of self and trust him regardless of what's to come. All right, let's start moving into application. Application. I don't think there's any point to apply things unless you really start to analyze it. But what does what we were just looking at tell us about Jesus? For me, it shows that Jesus openly challenges all people's preconceived notions of what they want their life to be like, big picture, and day to day. You know, but if you know... If you know enough about Jesus and the way he talks about his ministry in John, we see that this is not just Jesus's desire. You know, John 17, 7, 16 puts it this way. And Jesus answers him, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Who sent Jesus? God, his creator, right? The creator of everything. So we see that what Jesus is telling his disciples and the religious authority is not just from him, but it's from the creator of everything we know. So that shows us that our creator openly challenges all people's preconceived notions of what they want their life to be like. Big picture, what you want your life to be like over a 5, 10, 15 year period, but also day to day, what you're supposed to be today and tomorrow. leave it all behind. You know, you haven't seen me, but you heard my voice. Leave it all behind and wander around in the desert. What about Joseph? Locked away for 13 years of his life for doing nothing wrong. What about Moses? right? Yeah, Go before the most powerful man in the world and tell him to let go of my people. What about David? You are king. Now go run in the wilderness for 10 years as the king who's in place now tries to kill you. We see this over and over and over that God openly challenges all people's preconceived notions of what they want their lives to be like. So how does God challenge us? You know, for people who are still trying to figure out what Christianity is all about, it comes down to one question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? And maybe you've made this decision and this question still comes back to your mind from time to time. I know it does for me. It ultimately comes down to salvation comes through faith. But you've got to understand the challenge of that. Faith means you believe in something that you cannot concretely prove. And this is faith that you are broken and unable to heal yourself, that you are a major component to the flawed nature of this world, and that you need God to bring about your redemption. It's faith that it is only through God's mercy and grace that your life can be recreated and made whole. And man, that is so challenging. Even for those of us who have said, yes, I believe that. That is challenging. Because to come to that understanding requires honesty with yourself. Who you are, what your life looks like, transparency to be willing to admit that to God and to other people, and then humility to say, I need your help. I can't do it on my own. You know, when we live in a very relativistic society. What is good for you is good. Whatever you say is true is true. But look what Jesus says in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Absolute truth across the board. So challenging. You know, for those of us that have said, you know what, I believe in this. Even though it's challenging, I stake my life upon it. We're still challenged. We really are. We're challenged through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit with a big S. You know, Jesus refers to it as the Spirit of Truth, the one that will lead you into all truth. That's not just truth of what you should believe, theology, but it's also truth on how you should live your life day in, day out. You know, he... In the same way that he challenged the disciples' worldviews, it seems like he does it to us as well. You know, I have three questions, if you wouldn't mind putting those up there, Michael. Four questions. There's it's obviously a lot more than this, but it kind of sums up the ways in which we are challenged. Allow this to hit home to you. Are you the central figure of your own life and the world around you? Do you have the wisdom and understanding to make every decision correctly? What are you willing to surrender for your love of God and others? Who is your ultimate provider? You know, I feel like in the same way that Jesus was challenging His disciples' worldview of who, what it meant, like what it meant to be His disciple and what how it would turn out for them. The Spirit is doing that for us as well. How does He do this? You know, as I've been looking around this room, there is just so many of you that have been challenged in big ways. You know, think about being called to leave everything that is comfortable and go somewhere new, maybe as a missionary. Think about being called to leave your own job, the job that, you, that provides for you that you maybe enjoy or maybe you lose it altogether and then you can't find another job. Think about being called to adopt an individual into your family. Think about being called to have another baby even though you don't really want to. Think about being called to give up an addiction that you've been chained to for so long. Think about being called to get married or accept somebody's desire to marry you. Think about having a sickness or an injury that won't go away. Those are big things, big ways that God challenges us. Man, the small ways are even more abundant. You ever been... You ever feel like you're called or asked by God to say something to someone? Something very specific to somebody that you're not really that comfortable with? Whether it's your boss or your coworker or somebody random on the street? You're like, man, why would I ever say that? And then it just keeps coming back in your mind over and over. Or to love your spouse or your kids or your parents in a very specific way. Clean the house, do the dishes, right? chop the wood, whatever. Some way that does not make sense to you to do, but you know it would to them. Or to give away some money. doesn't matter how much, but you just feel like you're called to give away a specific amount of money. Or to stop listening to the podcast or the radio that you love so much. So you can be alone with God. Right? And there's endless more ways that God challenges us in very tangible ways. Say, who are you going to trust? You know, why does God do this? You know, if the Bible is true and the experiences that a lot of us have gone through then that means that God could easily keep us in our comfort zone, not make us move. He could give us a new job or the same one with an amazing raise in salary. He could heal our physical sickness. He could give us a child. He could do all these big things without us having to step out of our comfort zone. And in the small ways, and God can put thoughts in people's minds. That random stranger that he wants you to talk to, God, why don't you just put that in his mind? You're, you, you're sovereign over all physical things. Just speak to him. God, just put extra money in that person's bank account. Do the dishes for my wife. Right? He can do all these things. So why does he challenge us to do them instead of him doing them for us? I think what I've kind of boiled down to, it forces us to either reject him or trust in him and him alone. And I'm not talking just reject for my salvation. That is part of it. But after you've accepted that, he gives you time and time again, day after day, this choice of who am I going to trust? Am I going to reject what God's leading me to do, or am I going to trust him regardless of what he asks me to do? You know, by putting us in this situation that requires us to choose between what seems easy, natural, and culturally acceptable versus what is hard Uncomfortable, unnatural, and stupid in our culture's eyes, we are forced to either reject God's desires for our life or trust that He is good and that He has far more wisdom than we do. This is why God gave us free will. You think about Adam and Eve back in the garden, why did He give them a choice? I think it's so we can directly see the consequences of who or what we choose to trust. Let's give you a couple of verses kind of really put it together. The choice to trust anything but God will lead us lacking what we truly need. If you wouldn't mind putting up Jeremiah 2.13, kind of an analogy that the prophet Jeremiah uses. (laughs) For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. You know, think about that analogy, that metaphor. This is the metaphor. So... Think about what water provides us. It's everything, right? Water is life. It's refreshing in those moments. It's just so essential to who we are. And if you go to God, he is the fountain of living water, never-ending. It's like the world's largest hydro flask, right? It's just perfectly cool, never heats up. It's just everything you possibly need. But what we do when we trust in other things, we try to make these cisterns, these jars to hold water, that are so temporary that can only hold a little bit before they fall apart and we're just barely lapping up enough to get through the day. But if we choose to trust that God will provide us with everything we need in this life, it's a source of abundant life. Think about Jesus saying, you will have abundant life. Look at Proverbs 3. You guys have heard this one before, but it's so critical to take some time to meditate on this after we're done. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing for your flesh and a refreshment for your body. So how do we do this well? How do we deal with the ways that Jesus and God challenge us on a day-to-day basis? You know, for people that haven't quite come to that decision yet, to trust or reject Jesus, God through Jesus, you've got to realize that at the foundation of every belief, whether it's spiritual, philosophical, scientific, every belief at its basis has faith. There's no belief that can prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt why it is what it is. Also, you've got to take an honest look at your life and the level of perfection you have achieved. Examine your mind and your emotions on a deeper level. Is there only good within your heart? You know, and if you're able to change your own life in all the ways that it needs to be changed, why do you have a deeper longing for more? Why are you here? You know, and you can look at our, our culture, which is so f- fixed on giving people the options to have whatever truth they desire. How's that working out for our culture? Right, it's just look at cities or individuals and see how the freedom to choose whatever you want to choose to be true, how that's working out in the long run. You know, for believers, for people that have come to that position of faith, given their lives, pretty simple. You would not have a breath in your lungs, the blood in your base you have right now, that you did not cause the sun to rise, that everything good in your life comes from God and God alone. Go back to where you started. Take a moment and remember who God is and then remember who you are. After you've done that, obey. Simple. Four letters. O-B-E-Y. Obey. Often, what we do in these smaller things, and big ones as well, but we say, you know, I feel like I'm supposed to, but, and we fill it in with justifications. That doesn't make sense, that's not logical, it doesn't feel right, but my friend told me that's a bad idea, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Again, take a moment to think about who God is, and who you are so finite and incomplete and broken and he is so big and perfect and good. And he desires to lead us in the ways that we should go. This comes down to our willingness to obey. You know, John 14, 15, Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know, as we end tonight, we got a chance to celebrate communion together. Um, Communion is a tangible way to think about uh, what Jesus did in